What's up, everyone? Welcome to episode 42 of the Noise Podcast, brought to you by Noise.co.uk and sponsored by Stereo Brain Records. I am your host, slash your boy, Chris Pugh, and as ever, I'm joined by my very good friend and Mr. Cynical himself on his first day off of the six weeks holiday, Samuel Lewis. Mate, how are you? I'm well, mate. I'm fantastic. I'm in a fantastic mood and I couldn't imagine doing anything better than starting my holiday with this, my friend. Actually, my second day off of the six weeks, uh, and yesterday I went on a three-mile run, and today I did uh, like some kind of high-intensity training video. Uh, dude, I don't know what's going to happen to me in this six weeks. Am I coming out? Is it looking like Mike Tyson in 94? Holy shit, bro. Like, <laughs> high in- what does a high-intensity high training video mean? Does it just describe some guys just shouting at you? <laughs> <laughs> oh! <laughs> Well, it, basically, it's like doing an exercise that knackers the shit out of you. They give you a 30-second rest, and then they move on to a different exercise. So by the end of it, mate, you're absolutely bollocks. Like, my, oh, no, leg, my legs, mate, I've struggled. I'm, I was going to have to do this podcast with you by fucking phone, because I, I could barely <laughs> get up the stairs to get, to get to my laptop. Um, so yeah, man, like, mate, I'm fucking so excited for having all this time off because I think we're going to be able to get so many extra podcasts done in this next six weeks. It's a wonderful time. Oh, indeed it is, sir. Usually, we're a fortnightly rock and metal podcast. However, you wonderful lucky folks at home, for the next <laughs> few weeks, we're going to actually be a weekly rock and metal podcast. And that is because you would have noticed by the title of this YouTube video that we have now started the top 10 countdown on the greatest metal albums of all time, for which we will yes, give... Sir which we will give in each album a full episode. So how it's going to work is this obviously would be number 10. And then next week will just be a normal podcast where we do album reviews, news, etc. And then the week after we'll be doing number nine and so on. So every two weeks you'll be getting a greatest album of all time full breakdown from me and Sam. We are available on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts, as I mentioned, sponsored by the beautiful folks of Stereo Brain Records. On last week's episode, uh, Megadeth's Peace Sells But Who's Buying entered the greatest metal album of all time, this at number 11. We reviewed Asylum's Genetic Cabaret, the new Misery Signals album, fucking hell, it's so good, Ultraviolet, and my interview with Luke Rainsford was on that one as well. On this episode, not just is it a discussion of the 10th greatest metal album of all time. But also, we're going to be talking about Neck Deep's new album, All Distortions Are Intentional. So two very different things there, but two very interesting things nonetheless. Uh, like the video, subscribe to us, and tell a friend. That would be awesome. Sam, you revealed on last week's episode that number 10 in the greatest metal album of all time, this would be ACDC's Mammoth Colossal Out of This World Setting, Back in Black. Uh, and I... I, I I was immediately interested for the kind of conversation that we'd have because I wasn't expecting our highway to hell conversation to be as detailed and as and as in depth as it was. So I thought this is just a great opportunity for us to really, really break down one of really the most formidable rock records that has ever or will ever be released, right? Oh, absolutely. I think it was it was worked out quite nicely actually. Uh, for the timeline of the band that we'll we'll discuss and things that uh, Highway to Hell discussion came first, and then Back in Black came later, given the circumstances surrounding the two albums. Um, but yeah, this is this is without a doubt one of the greatest heavy metal albums of all time, and one of the most successful and formidable is a great great word to use. Um, the way that it's just 
its longevity and influence is as deep as any other album. And people might people might think, well, I see this. I wouldn't consider them a metal band. Well, um, they were considered heavy metal at the time. They were a heavy yeah. metal band at the time that this, this this was released. And while the genre has got heavier since, it is still a tipping point for heavy metal in general, just in the way that the songs were written and the way that they were perceived and the, the, the catapulting that it brought to them later in their career. You know, ACDC bring it back in black and that's the reason why 30 years later they're headlining festivals and things like that. You know, they actually headlined Donington for the first time in 1981 supporting this album. Um, so that really kicked off the ACDC headlining download type um, sort of size that they had, although it took a while. Absolute tons for us to discuss here, but let's let's speak first of all about some of the inner workings of ACDC as we get to 1980. This is their sixth studio album in four years. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about that for a minute. Uh, unbelievable. I mean, even for the late 70s, where bands generally did tend to be uh, more active in terms of. Uh, mm-hmm. studio at the studio front uh, you know you think of black sabbath they were doing an album every year till 1976 i think yeah um so generally in in this day uh, bands would tend to be more active in the studio but even with that said six records four years that is uh, prolificity in uh, the grandest sense is it not oh, absolutely it, it was um it was who icdc were so they were, they were an incredibly hard-working band, um, just toured, wrote, toured, wrote, toured, wrote, uh, pretty much pretty much constantly. And they did this through the 80s as well. So the last single for this album was Rock and Rock for Back in Black. It was Rock and Roll, like Noise Pollution. that was released in like March 81. And for those who went to Rock, We Salute You came out later that year. So like the last single for Back in Black came out within like six months or even less than that, might have been three or four months of their first album following that. And they just toured consecutively. Um, there's a there's a bit of an in, there's a bit of an industry history here. So Angus and Malcolm Young's, I think it's their brother or their uncle, um, worked in a worked in a production company, um, and they did several hit singles around the around the world for twenty or thirty years leading up to leading up to ACDC being formed, and handled a lot of the production throughout the 1970s and 80s for ACDC and loads of other bands. And lots of other groups and stuff, they're minted. Um, so, but at the same time, it's it's that idea that ACDC has always, absolutely always been a business, right? Now, it sounds really strange to talk about a band that's so legendary, but you don't really know a lot. There's a bit of mystery around ACDC, and we'll get to all that a little bit later. They're not a public band. It's literally like, here's our music, here's our music video, here's our album, here's our tour. And then in a year's time, we'll do the same thing again. It's proper like, conveyor belt type stuff and i think that really comes from the band's own work ethic but also their background and approach to the music business in general i know that we have already discussed highway to hell in great detail on a previous episode because i forgot where that landed in the list maybe 13 14 uh yeah it was a top 20 album for sure but it would be foolish of us if we didn't uh, give a brief moment to that album before going into Back and Back in Black, and, and possibly e- even before then, because Highway to Hell was the record that uh, kind of moved ACDC yeah. up an echelon. Uh, however, from the research that I've done, etc., 
Um, actually, there was this sense that this could potentially be coming from 1978 to Pepper Rage. Yeah, so they were, they, were, they were really building up a fan base because of this consistent release. So because they were able to release the album, do a tour, and ACDC went everywhere all the time, and they were a brilliant live band. Their, their, their fan base was swelling up. So from Pepper Rage onwards... And when they finally got on um, Top of the Pops, we touched too much um, off, um, off Highway to Hell. Um, it was really a signal that they, were, that, that, that they were really prepared for that leap. And then obviously Back in Black comes out itself. And that does actually, <laughs> that does actually take place. You know, I think their first single was uh, You Shut Me All Night Long um, from Back in Black. Uh, fairly good choice, I would suggest. Yeah. Um, um, and, and really, and really, 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 really took them off with the subsequent tour. Uh, but yeah, 100%. Uh, ICDC would, had worked so hard to this point um, that nothing really was going to stop them from becoming a hugely successful rock act, including what could be the most damaging thing that could ever happen to any rock act, yeah. which, is losing your, which is losing your vocalist. Even that did not stop ICDC becoming more successful. This would have happened pretty much regardless. Like, apart from like a Busby Babes type aeroplane crash where Angus and Malcolm both die, nothing would have prevented Back in Black becoming this level of um, this level of, of success, really, because they were just so they worked so hard for it. They were so ready for it. The songs were all there. It really was a case of just pressing play. Fascinating to think that. In 1979, they write the album of 99.8% band's career. And then in 1980, they write the album of 99.99% band's career. Just (laughs) Just this absolute monolith of on the button, perfectly nuanced songwriting that uh, Angus and Malcolm Young absolutely... I mean, nailed down just isn't, there is no phrase really that can really sum up how perfectly timed Highway to Hell and Back in Black were in terms of a picturesque of the late 70s and early 80s and albums that really would be the formation of rock forever. Like 40 years yeah. later, 40 <laughs> years later, Back in Black and Highway to Hell are still the, are still the, the watermark rock albums four decades later without without doubt and there are still new bands springing up in 2020 that sound like acdc um acdc are so big that other bands have just sounded like them and become famous yeah um airborne have built an entire career on sounding like acdc yeah and they have their own like subsection of fans and that's just like that's like breaking off a flake of acdc's dandruff and selling that it's 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 just astonishing um but yeah um we'll get into the album in general as well but obviously highway to hell was 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 superb it's actually my personal favorite because there's a couple of songs in it that i just adore like touch too much and walk all over you and stuff like that um but there is a quantum leap in everything on back in black from songwriting to production to size um that they they just peaked at this album without without a shadow of a doubt and as a result, as you said, they laid the blueprint for pretty much what a modern heavy rock and heavy metal song sounds like for the next 40 years. I mean, there are 
at least three songs on this album, if not four or five, if you're a big fan, that are utterly timeless. Yeah. And are perfect in every single way. I mean, this album's barely been remastered or retouched at all. And it sounds absolutely glorious. Um, yeah, it does. From from you know from, hot, from hell's bells to you should be all night long back in black. What do you do for money, honey? Does just peak rock songwriting, and there is a leap. Um, Highway to hell. We talked about Highway to hell. It's great, and it, it's it's really a collection of a few great rock riffs and Bon Scott's wit, yeah, and 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 humour over the top, and and that adds this like extra little spice to what's going on. This um, is riff perfection in terms of the way that the chords are structured with each other it sounds simple but there are so many little nuances of the way that malcolm young who was the main songwriter uh, really put together some of these rhythm guitar tracks but this is the acdc it sounds like it's the same riff back in black throughout but it's not every mm. few bars it shifts around you know what i mean and that is we go into detail in the music a little bit later obviously but that is an example of one how und- actually ironically underrated the were in terms of like musical technicians because that's never really spoken about but 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 two yeah absolutely this is the absolute pinnacle for what a rock album can be and in my opinion if if i was doing the top greatest hard rock albums of all time this probably would be number one for me personally i think it just ticks every single box just moving into the statistics for a quick moment. Uh, one of the greatest selling albums of all time, over 50 million units, uh, 25 million of those in the US. I mean, these numbers, Sam, I mean, that is astronomical. This is an album yeah. that has sold extremely well every year since it's been out. I would be curious to see how many how many albums they've sold of Black in Black this year. I'd imagine, it, I'd, I'd imagine it's... A, it's if you put a gun to my head, I'd say 15,000. And that's 40 years later. Yeah, it was actually certified 25 times platinum in December 2019. Unbelievable. So it went, it went platinum for the 25th time 18 months ago. People aren't even buying albums anymore, but they're still somehow buying Back in Black. It's astonishing. I, it, I do believe it's, the, the reports... Uh, uh, some some are saying it's the third greatest selling album of all time. Some are saying it's the sixth or the seventh. So we'll just go with it, it's one of. Um, yeah. But but even with that, you know, people people talk a lot about the concept of album sales uh, in, in this day and age, and and this, like you just said, being certified platinum for the twenty fifth time, even last year. There's plenty of examples of why ACDC are so timeless and that they will live forever in the annals of rock history. But I think this album, even if um, thematically and musically you think ACDC have been better at other points, I think this album is like the undisputed king of them being at the peak of their uh, commercial and gravitational powers. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think it's also worth mentioning that uh, ICD, this album obviously is massively successful, but it wasn't like it sold 15 million in its first year. No. It was, it was a steady, steady in- increase, and it just consistently sold, right? So, like, ICD, and, that, and, that, and that's, what, that's what's given them their longevity, is that they released this album, and it's been, like, musical-like sale porridge, in equivalent that it's just provided for them constantly for years and years and years and years and years. And... 
what it also harks back to a different era. Um, like my, my dad told me a story when he when he first heard it, it was like on a ho- on a holiday with his parents because he was like I don't know seventeen or something, and he bought the album because he and, and he he was like I'm going to take this back home, but I'm not going to hear it because he didn't have a vinyl player in this hotel room that they were staying at, and the the bloke that he bought it off was like well I'll play it here for you if you want. And he said he put the vinyl on and he just stood there in the shop for an hour and a half just listening to this this ACDC tune. But then after that, he had to just put it in a bag and go home, go to this hotel for like seven days, just staring at the album. That's (laughs) crazy. Just like, I can't hear this again. So if you didn't buy the album as well, like bands released two or three singles that were played on radio. And if you wanted the rest of it, you had to buy the album. That was that was it. Like if you wanted the song, you had to buy it. There was no other way of accessing the music. And ACDC sounded fucking phenomenal on the radio and fucking phenomenal on, on live speakers and in clubs and pubs. We can both attest to the latter. Yeah. Um just it just it still sounds massive. And the the way that the, the audience was was grabbed by the ball, so to speak, is the way that they, they had to get the entire album to, to experience these songs at home. Otherwise they just were not going to. And they were so consistently putting stuff out there that, that they were, they were not saturating the market as such dominating it to a, to a way that, that people just don't do now. Like I can't even think of what the equivalent would be to ACD to bring in our albums and singles like this, that you had to access. Like, if you imagine like a big hip hop artist, like a Drake or a Kanye West, imagine if Kanye West released like six albums in seven years, but you couldn't download them off Spotify or iTunes. They were only yeah. available by the CD. Mate, there'd be queues around, AC- there'd be queues around HMV. They would, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because that's the only place to get them and their fans are massive. And that's the thing is that there's, music fans are still passionate. It's just the roots have been expanded so much that it's just dispersed. But man, they just cornered this market. And they were brilliant in America, like they were massive in America. They sounded great across the radio and they just dominated the two biggest music markets in the world pretty much consistently. We won't talk about Brian Johnson, the vocalist, in terms of picking him apart yet. But did did want to move on to uh, the tragedy of Bon Scott's death. Yeah. Um in my opinion, and I think this is a, a, an element of what makes Back in Black such a, an amazing, amazing piece of music. For ACDC to lose such a charismatic frontman uh, or slash vocalist, because theoretically, I've always wondered with ACDC whether, whether Angus Young is actually the frontman, like with the schoolboy <laughs> uh, yeah. school uniform kind of thing and his personality on stage. I've always, I've always thought they're... E- there is that argument to be had, but for the sake of simplicity, let's just say that we're going to call Bon, Spot, bon Scott the front man. So to lose frontman slash vocalist of such importance and gravitas as Bon Scott, I'm thinking um, Corey Taylor dying. I'm thinking yeah. of Sykes. I'm thinking yeah. M. Sh- I'm thinking M. Shadows. I'm thinking like that level of a loss. Like yeah. obviously. Ollie Sykes is so synonymous with Bring Me Their Eyes. And imagine if, obviously, tragedy, uh, he passed away. 
it would be unthinkable. How could we have Bring Me the Horizon fronted by anyone other than Ollie Sykes? And I, I think I, Chester I, Bennington with Linkin Park. Oh, exactly. Absolutely. Uh, very, very timely uh, that you would bring that up. Uh, Chester Bennington, you know, it, it's unthinkable. Uh, you know, you, you, you think about the concept of someone else fronting Bring Me the Horizon, someone else fronting Linkin Park. How could you possibly? And I think that's the level that we are talking about when referring to uh, Bon Scott. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And the band were famously talked into finding a new vocalist at Bon Scott's funeral by yeah. Bon Scott's parents. Yeah, I read this, yeah. And they were like, um in and ah in, um, because I, 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 I'm convinced that eventually they would have just, you know, found a vocalist, even if it would have taken a little bit longer. But they had to be kicked up the pants a little bit. And... The, the, I thought I always thought this was quite, quite nice. The parents were saying, look, Bon, I know Bon made a stupid mistake, but he would have been mortified if his death broke this band up. Like, uh, it, it, to think that he would be more embarrassed about losing ACDC than him actually dying says a lot about Bon Scott. Right? He thought that because of his mistake, his friends would have lost their careers, would have, would have, would have, obviously he died but it would have eaten him alive so to speak do you know what i mean and 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 they were like all right and okay and there's a great there's a great story as well and and, and as well shout to acdc uh gave bon scott's family points on the album um awesome. so so they get they get a percentage so i imagine they've been well looked after <laughs> yeah, you know what i mean by, i imagine so by, yeah. the, by, by the sale and um, but but it's also the right thing to do because as we get in later bon scott contributed to a lot of these lyrics and a lot of these songs um, and that, that plugs Brian Johnson into a lot of it uh, later on because it was it was largely done at that point. Uh, but famously, Brian Johnson was unemployed. He didn't even he wasn't even in a band. No. When they rang when they rang him, he used to be in a band called Geordie, which is and the they, most unimaginable name for they, a band from Newcastle. They'd broken up, hadn't they? They'd stopped. Indeed, he was working on cars, and apparently the call went, and he got the phone call, and he said, um, "You want to you want to audition for a famous rock band?" And he said, "Well, who are they?" He says, well, they, they want you to be in London. I can't tell you. He says, well, I'm not, I'm not driving down to London to audition for Duran Duran. You've got to tell me who, who these are at least. Give me a clue. And he says, oh, the band starts with AC and they've lost a vocalist recently. And he says, oh, we'll, do it. well, that narrows it down, doesn't it? I imagine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he said, oh, I, watched, I watched that interview with Brian and he's saying that the person that rang him was like some kind of like a German or German woman. And she was like, oh, I think I said too much. <laughs> <laughs> I love the accent. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's just superb. And then obviously he goes down. There's, there's an obvious fit, and 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 away we go. But yeah, I mean, for for many bands, I mean, we talked about Metallica and Justice for All, and without minimising Cliff Burton, he wasn't their vocalist and rhythm guitarist or anything like that. It was like Metallica could have lost Lars and James, and it, it would have decimated the group. Um, and and that fucked Metallica up for like four years. Like it, like emotionally, really messed with them. And ACDC lost Bon Scott, went to the funeral, did one interview where the I think it was Sounds Magazine, I think, and it was the show must go on. And they talked about it. And since then, they've not said a fucking word. Uh, they just brought Brian Johnson in, and they've just carried on. It is the most seamless transition from tragedy in in modern music that I have ever seen absolutely ever seen and it is, it is absolutely astonishing you wonder obviously 
And this is a question for you. Do you think Back in Black would have been as successful with Bon Scott? Ah, see, this is this was one of my questions for you because I st- I still don't I still don't know the answer to that because I think I think I think these songs would have been absolutely huge regardless. Um, but there is a certain tone that Brian Johnson hits on some of these songs that that works wonderfully. Now, it's a shame that Bon Scott never got to sing some of these songs because. Um, like you shook me all night long. If you listen to any ACDC song prior to you shook me all night long, that's quite obviously a Bon Scott song because of all the sexual innuendos and stuff like that. Yeah. And he was actually dating. He was actually dating an American girl at the time. So two and two. And but Bon Scott's vo- uh, Bon Scott's voice is very it's much higher than Brian Johnson's. And I always thought that Brian Johnson's voice was beautifully suited to that song. How that you had the high pitched sort of riff with his deep voice and then hell's bells at the start with like on rolling thunder on pouring rain and all this sort of stuff i think that really suits his voice and bon scott could not have done that all that hey 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 stuff that brian johnson does i'm back in black um so it's so difficult for you to imagine how bon scott would have done this but but they were fucking brilliant with bon scott as well so it would have been different but I think this album would have blown the doors off anyway, or at least I'd like to think so, because the riffs were all there, the lyrics were all there, whoever was there anyway. Um, it would have just been slightly different, but there are certain points of this album where it, it's not a facsimile. The great thing about Brian Johnson is he never tried to be Bon Scott. He was always just Brian Johnson. He was always him. And that is a lovely juxtaposition. So it's, to, it's so different to the fact that I can't swap one with another. Um, but I still think it would have been all right. At worst, it would have been ninety-seven percent successful because these songs were just too good. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think unless you brought in a vocalist that was dramatically worse than Bon Scott, I think that yeah. this album would have been a, a monolithic success regardless. Because yeah, as we're going to get into, some of this is just so timeless. So brilliantly written that as long as you've got someone that can sing and can hit the high notes that you're looking for, it's going to be a success. Now, you put someone as talented as Brian Johnson or Bon Scott in those shoes and that success is just absolutely quadrupled and then Mm -hmm. quadrupled the quadruple in terms of the the success. (laughs) Um, Yeah, yes, indeed. Going to move forward into a quick moment of critical reception. A uh, lot of 5 out of 5s and 10 out of 10s across the board. Uh, Steve Candell in Pitchfork would write, Back in Black is claimed in equal measure by the jocks, the stoners, the nerds, the delinquents and the teachers. It is their most album, most accessible, most successful, most enduring, most emblematic and given its genesis, most unlikely. Uh, and I also managed to find an excerpt from David Frick um, who wrote the Rolling Stone review in 1980. So this is the actual 1980 review of Black in Black. Um, Black in Black is not only the best of ACDC six American albums, it's the apex of heavy metal art. The first, yes, L- the, the first LP is Led Zeppelin's two that captures all the blood, sweat and arrogance of the genre. In other words, Back in Black kicks like a mother. Now, I think that is a really fascinating excerpt from a review because... Just piggybacking off what you were mentioning at the beginning, David Frick here is referring to Back in Black as heavy metal art. 
Whereas yes. what what we've become to now know is that um, we, we refer to back and back as classic rock, but classic rock hadn't really begun to to really be for, formated, um, put in formation, sorry, at that point. Mm. So we're referring to ACDC as heavy metal art, which is which is fascinating. And now I you would know much more about Led Zeppelin than me, but this is being written as though they have taken the flag from Led Zeppelin and carried that forward, whereas obviously Black Sabbath by 1980 had gone into um, other other varying areas. But this this was being branded as what would become the flag bearer for heavy metal. Obviously, over the decades, that would change. We would never refer to this as classic rock. But I find that really, really interesting. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. I think it signals because classic rock wasn't classic at that point. It was just rock, wasn't it? And, and, yeah. and, and we'd be just, that was, that was heavy metal. This was still, I mean, I mean, look at the year that it came out. We talk about this all the time, but, um, Ozzy Osbourne's crazy train, you know, Judas Priest, Motorhead, that sort of stuff. This is as heavy, yeah. if not heavier at points in terms of the, the size of the riffs. And it was, yeah, it was genuinely considered a heavy metal album at the time absolutely was considered a heavy metal album at the time and it wasn't until really the mid 80s when we had thrash and iron maiden where we actually started to 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 find a real difference between like metal and rock and hard rock and icdc over the years as metal has got heavier sidled to the to the left towards hard rock but at the time this was as heavy if not heavier than most of the things that were coming out and that's what i'm saying like led zeppelin were considered heavy metal in the 1970s you know, uh, Black Sabbath were like life-changingly heavy at that point. That that was just where we were musically and culturally. I, and I, I love that David Frick quote. If you hadn't brought it up, I would have, um, because it, it 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 encapsulates the fact that one how well, how well it was received, um, but but two the fact that, that this feels like a beautiful summary and celebration of everything that's great about early heavy metal and and, and hard rock. Um, and there's also a, a, a lovely, a lovely, a lovely, a lovely quote, which I think is actually, um, um, it's actually meant to be insulting, but makes me laugh, to be honest. Uh, a penchant for firearms and a crass celebration of the unthinking macho hedonism that killed the band's original singer. And it's, it's, it's a criticism, but what makes me laugh is, is the idea that, yeah, it's a celebration of all the things that were so heavy and so rock and roll that their last singer died from it. Yeah, that's their fucking rock and roll. They are <laughs> yeah. like that. That that that's what makes me laugh about it. It's like that's seen as like an insult, and ACDC wearing that shit like a badge of honor. So like, like drinking too much and being like rock and roll and doing whatever you wanted killed Bon Scott. And the literally the next album is ACDC like, yeah, how great was that? <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like a, it's like a celebration of stuff. It's not like ACDC brought it back in black, and it's like we're gonna change our ways. And, you know, like, that was a thing as well. That was a thing as well. ACDC never even remotely considered changing who they were as a band in style, substance, lyrical content, anything at all. They were just like, oh, Bon, bon Scott died, we'll better just find a new vocalist and just, just keep this rolling. It was absolutely astonishing. And, and, and I... I just I just adore it, and it is it is right it is rightly considered as as the apex of of heavy metal at that point because it was 
it was I, it was ACDC, Black Sabbath, Led Zeppelin, uh, Deep Purple, and to a lesser degree, Motorhead. Then later on, I imagine Metallica. But from 79 to 83, ACDC were the biggest heavy metal band on the planet and probably also one of the heaviest too. Moving into a bit more detail in terms of Brian Johnson joining the band, I watched an interview with Brian uh, with Absolute Radio. It's about 30 minutes long, uh, very easy to get on YouTube. I'd recommend anyone that's into ACDC watch it. It's very interesting. And Brian Johnson, you can tell, is a really nice guy. Um, it was the producer, Matt Lang, who supposedly originally recommended Brian Johnson as Bon Scott had gone to him and said, there's this guy in England that's a, it's a really good vocalist, uh, Van Jordan. Um, at the point where Brian Johnson gets this phone call, Brian Johnson's 32, and you know he's he's not sure whether he'd whether he'd be the right whether he'd be the right fit for the band. And he says that the only reason why he turned up to the audition was because he had something to do with a Hoover commercial on the same day that was around about the same area. So he, he he's thinking I haven't got a fucking chance of getting this gig. So there's no point in me turning up. But I have got to go down that way anyway to do something with this Hoover TV advert. <laughs> so, so I suppose I'll pop my head in and just do it because it's on the way, which I just think is fucking incredible. You think about like, a turn of events that would change someone's life. Fucking hell, if it wasn't for this Hoover TV advert, Brian Johnson might not have been an ACDC. And, and, and also mentally he's treated ACDC interview like I would treat picking up a bottle of milk on the way home from work. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, I'll just see what happens. He's he's so numb to the idea of there's no way they are going to pick me to be the vocalist of fucking ACDC. This is just, they just needed someone else because they had 10 spaces, nine are filled, needed one more person. And they've just been like, oh, there was that guy in Geordie or whatever he can sing of it. Let's just put him in so he can say we filled the spaces. Um, he turns up, he said it goes obviously well. I believe he sang Whole lot of Rosie and I can't remember, I can't remember the other song that he said he sang. Um, on the callback, on the second audition, they asked him to do Highway to Hell and the actual song, Back in Black, but they didn't have any lyrics for it yet. So it was just him singing Back in Black over Angus playing the main riff. And then they said, we think you're the guy. To which, like, uh, this interview, Brian is like, no, no, I, I, I think I'm a bit past myself by day. Uh, you know, sh surely not me. And, like, he had to be convinced by the band, like, no, definitely you 100 percent. we want we want you to do it and i think that we said that i, I, I said that on highway to hell acdc in like the late 70s with this perfect depiction of the working man's band right mm -hmm. the 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 wit of bon scott's lyrics about failure with women uh drinking heavy amounts of alcohol uh, substance abuse that kind of thing something that like the late 70s working man in the factories could really relate to and then Bon Scott dies, and who do they replace him with? A fucking Geordie. I do, you mean? I mean, can you think of a more ideal? Let's just take away ability. Uh, a northern, fucking born in Newcastle, born and bred, working class Geordie guy to replace Bon Scott in this band that is a, a perfect shining light for your average working man. I mean, that is just put together in a dream, is it not? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. He definitely fit ACDC's mindset as much as he fit their sound. Absolutely. And I, I, I would imagine, I would imagine that that came across in the audition. Yeah. Um, because, because, you know, I mean, ACDC, like, you've got to, 
Brian Johnson's are just signing up for a six month gig with OCDC. They're they're like, if you're the guy, you're this is your life for 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 like the next forty years. We're just going to do this all the time, and that's what has happened. I mean, like Malcolm Young was playing was playing ACDC gigs when he had like dementia and stuff, and and that they've just got rid of people and and, and rotated, and they've just continued. Um, so I imagine there's got to be an element where they thought um, that Brian Johnson was match with the mindset and the, the attitude of the band of being on time and being hard at work and all that sort of stuff. And I, I can imagine socially, there's like an interesting correlation between an Australian and a new person from Newcastle in terms of like uh, context and habits and, and, and everything, you know, about people from Newcastle, and everything, you know, about blogs from Australia. I imagine there's a lot in common, uh, especially around a pub table to be quite frank. So I think, yeah, I agree with you. It's a perfect marriage between person and persona, 100%. Just the final piece from me on backstory of the album before we actually start discussing the inner workings. Uh, from what I've researched, the band's first gig together was somewhere in Belgium. Uh, the venue was, uh, you know, supposedly ready to hold about 2,000 people. They were just doing like something of a warm-up gig. Let's see how this works on a live setting. Um, 2,000 people expected to turn up. But it was, and now the way they describe this, it doesn't make sense to me because I've never seen a venue like this. But the way that I've researched been described, it was a venue that could be spread backwards if more people needed to fill in, get in like. Uh, the, the venue size could be extended. Anyway, right. um, they're expecting 2,000 people to turn up, but then the, <laughs> the manager comes to them and says, you can't start yet because there's another 2,000 people out there. We've got to try and get in. Eventually... ACDC are waiting for like two or three hours to start because 10,000 people turn up and there's not a single body more they can fit. And I think that was a real telling sign of, of where things would go for ACDC. That obviously there was still, I mean, in the middle of Belgium, there's still this absolute burgeoning audience that even though it's not Bon Scott, there's a, a group that are absolutely massively on board. And I think that is the perfect tale or a perfect kind of prelude for what ACDC would go on to become. I completely agree. And also it's an interesting mention. Me and you keep talking about is, is, is X band big enough to do Y festival and ACDC 1980 were being booked, booked into 2000 to 3000 seat venues. And the following year headlined Donington. Yeah, that's a very good point. This just shows exponential growth uh, can happen depending on time, circumstance, and quality. But also, also the 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 maybe the maybe the watermark that a band needs to hit is not as seismically huge as maybe as maybe we've perceived to be, and maybe Copin perceives to be at times with his download booking. Because like obviously, ICDC grew massively as a result of this album and exponentially grew and stuff and that and that was the excitement and things like that and that would not happen in 2020 for pretty much any band ever but if they were big enough originally to be booked in 2000 3000 seater venues rather than say like 20,000 seaters like let zeblin would have been and they were then big enough to headline a festival then that that surely symbolizes maybe that you know download was born on this bit of bravery and 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 and, and picking out the next band although that's a, that's a separate conversation that we've obviously already had it was just something nice to note yeah we have these conversations that's a great festival. point yeah 
So, Samus, let, let, I mean, let's let's talk about the album. We spoke for nearly 40 minutes here. Um, yeah. But, like, you know, I think that the fact that we've gone so long and we haven't really spoke about the songs yet is just telling us what a fucking tremendous album this is and what a fascinating timestamp it is for alternative music. Um, but I, I really liked Highway to Hell. I thought it was re- really great. It was my first time hearing the record. Obviously, I knew of the big songs from it, but in terms of listening to it in its full entirety, yeah. that was my first time. I, I feel like this is, um, a, 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 back in black, it is a step up in pretty much every measure for me personally. Yeah. I, know you, I, know, I know you said that there are elements of Highway to Hell you prefer. For me personally, back in black would very much be the choice. And that's not, not to dig Highway to Hell. I just think this is such a such an absolutely fucking out of this world record. When I first saw the track list, I was absolutely furious that Back in Black doesn't open the album. You know, I've got that thing like, oh um, no, no, mate, but this, 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 this is the yeah, best decision. Yeah, so I, I couldn't believe they didn't open the album of Back in Black. I was like, how can I open it with that fucking riff and Brian Johnson shouting Back in Black as the opening moment to this album? Obviously, then I hear Hell's Bells. <laughs> that 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 funeral bell that leads into Angus and goosebumps, obvious, mate, mate, legit goosebumps. Uh, opening lyrics, uh, well, one of the opening lyrics: "You're only young, but you're gonna die." You know, okay. I was like, right, this is fucking wicked. I can absolutely see why "Back in Black" is not the opening uh, track on this album. Mate, "Hell's Bells" is a fucking unbelievable moment of hard rock. Absolutely, it's one of my it's one of my top five favorite um, ACDC songs, and it's also a highlight that they play live because they actually bring out a real bell um, for him to gong every 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 um, every night, and he actually does a big run up and and catches onto the road. But it's sixty, it's astonishing. <laughs> um, but but yeah, um, I remember hearing Hell's Bells when I was like ten, and it was like the coolest thing I'd ever heard. Yeah, like did this funeral gong and this massive massive riff and it's so sinister yeah. like it's a sinister riff it's a dark riff um and then it kicks in with this just incredibly epic opening um collection of riffs because it's the it's the introduction riff to begin with and it's that secondary riff that kicks in before the verse as well and then Ang- uh, and then Brian Johnson comes in with his this signature like sort of growl and his deep voice on rolling thunder on pouring rain coming on like a hurricane and it's like these massive, powerful metaphors. It's like they're here. But also, it's a nod to Bon Scott, isn't it? That that bell, that toll, yeah. the funeral sound, the the fact that the the album's entirely in black. And it just fits the, the context of everything. It is just the perfect opener to, to this album. It, it really just sets the tone. And it's a mammoth song. Oh, my God. Absolute mammoth song. It is just incredible. Um, there are like four or five great riffs that could carry an entire song on their own in this one in this one album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just absolutely astonishing. I I thought it made unbelievable sense to open the album with a mid tempo song given the way the Highway to Hell opens. I thought right, okay. I, I, I I thought that was a very much very much good cynicism there. Um when you move on uh, to shoot to thread is my favorite song on the album. Um, okay. That fucking opening from Angus and Malcolm. Oh man. Yeah. yeah. The back and forth between the two of them. is just marvelous, isn't it? It's just so epically written. And also can I mention it's the, the greatest use of rock music in pop culture is when shoot to thrill plays at the start of Iron Man 2. 
at the start of <laughs> Iron Man 2 when the back of that fucking plane opens and the riff kicks in and fucking Iron Man runs and jumps out and he's flying on the way to that convention. I mean, mate, it's the greatest thing in the world. It's so, <laughs> like, mate, it, it just every time I see Iron Man 2 and I, and I hear Shoot to Thrill, opening i just got a massive smile on my face it's so so invigorating exciting so fitting for iron man i mean and also you know a point here what iron man 2 came out i think in 2010 30 years after after back in black comes out and yeah it, it and shoot to thrill is still like there is no better song that i can possibly think to fit into that scene than shoot, than shoot to thrill. It's the greatest use of rock music in pop culture ever. Absolutely love that. <laughs> that um, is that is an incredibly bold claim, by the way. Oh, the, mate. Greatest, the greatest use of rock music in pop culture ever. In all of pop culture and all of rock music ever in, is into, Iron Man. In, into, well, I mean, Marvel films are pop culture, aren't they? In terms of like... No, film, I'm, not, I'm not disagreeing with this place, yeah. In terms of like cinematography, I just, I just don't think there's any... I mean, um, For Whom the Bell Tolls on Zombieland is wicked, of course, but I just don't think a, a rock song has ever been put to better use in, in cinematography. I, I, it just fits... Mate, I'm not sure when the last time we saw Iron Man 2 was. Uh, mate, a while ago, the, Mate, mate, the clip is on YouTube. Mate, fucking go back and watch it. You'll just have a small fucking <laughs> smile on your face. It fits okay. so brilliantly. And it's uh, and Shoot to Thrill is a fucking amazing song regardless. Brian Johnson's got such an attitude and bravado in his vocal delivery. I fucking love it, man. Um, that, that, like, there's a real, like, charisma to the chorus. Uh, too many women, too many pills. It's fucking, oh, mate, I, love, I could listen to Shoot to Thrill every day for the rest of my life, man. I fucking um, adore it, mate. The fucking solo after he shouts, pull the trigger as well. Oh, I could, mate, I could go on for another 15 minutes about Shoot to Thrill. I just think it's absolutely fucking brilliant. Um, the the three-song run of What Do You Do For Money, Giving the Dog a Bone, Let Me Put My yep. Love Into You. You know, I, I feel like that's probably... <sighs> equal measure as important to anything else in the album because it maintains that kind of self-exposing wit that you mentioned that Bon Scott had on like Girls Got a Rhythm and Shot Down in Flames. Mm -hmm. I completely agree. I think that um, What Do You Do For Money, Honey is an incredibly underrated song as well. I absolutely love it. I, 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 love, I love the riff at the start. I love the way that the drums interact at the beginning, the way the whole thing. And it's a massive chorus that ACDC bringing back that group vocal thing that's, that's made them... Um, millions of hits over the years and or also let me love put my love into you um for the most bon scott sexual innuendo i've ever heard which is let me cut your cake with my, my knife, knife. <laughs> yeah i mean it's just so cringy even when i heard that when i was like 11 i was like oh lads yeah come on, come on now. Now. <laughs> we, we're better than we're better than that aren't we boys but it's the most bon scott thing ever to paint himself as some like weird horny chef um <laughs> to be involved with this but um yeah I, I even the album tracks are just brilliant on this there's just no filler absolutely anywhere and it like says it, it it's just the, the the simple power and pound of this band um before it even gets to um uh, back in black and you shut me all night long can i point out that my favorite like 10 seconds from the whole album is on uh, What You Do For Money where at the very end Brian screams What You Gonna Do and then Angus with that riff dim, 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 <laughs> like, <laughs> mate like com completely it completely reflects his inflection vocally 
but in or in a guitar town at the exact same time. Oh, mate, it's fucking brilliant. It's so, so fucking good. cool. So intelligently written. Um, I completely agree. There's so many little solos that Angus Young does. He, he's written so many solos that are not fast, but they're just so iconic. You could yeah. hum a great Angus Young solo. It's, 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 it's incredible what he's able to do. Do you think that in terms of technique and pitch, the greatest differences between Brian Johnson and Bon Scott can be found on um, Let Me Put My Love Into You? In terms of like the deepness of his voice and stuff. In terms of pitch and technique, not lyrically. Oh yeah, definitely. Like um, in the verses of "Let Me Put My Love Into You," when he's like running, running, flee, flying, yeah. driving. <laughs> like Bon Scott. That, that's my, Sorry, that's, that's not good. my. That's not my Brian Johnson impression. I, 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 I think I'm much better at the, the high pitch Brian Johnson stuff. But he said it's the gravelly sort of like it's it's not guttural, but it's low. And but Bon Scott would definitely not be able to do that 100%. Bon, bon Scott's low voice was still, like, quite high, you know. Is there a more iconic one-two punch of hard rock than the title track and you shut me all night long? No, it does not. So. I, there's, there's, if, if you put it together, the top 10 hard rock songs of all time, they're probably top 10 at the very least. Yeah. Um, I think... Um, which one do I start with? Does Back in Black then do You Shut Me All Night Long? It's Back in Black and then Shut Me All Night Long, if I remember correctly. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, all right. Back in Black is... We talked about we talked about Crazy Train being one of the top greatest riffs ever. Back in Black is is almost twice as iconic. Yeah. Like, legit, yeah. Legitimately. Back in Black, everybody knows Back in Black. And yeah. um, the, just the riff is perfect. It's it's the the heaviness the heaviness of the of the actual opening chord juxtaposed with that little that little bluesy lick every single time gets me I absolutely adore it um, but also also it's um, the fact that every verse the chords slightly change it's the same structure of the song but Malcolm Young shifts the chords around at various points in the verse and. When you listen to it, you can hear the verses are slightly different and the and the, the breakdowns are slightly different, but it's essentially the same thing. And that I think the level of nuance there is just absolutely superb because it's the chords are so similar, but he manages to to, to sort of flip them around and make the song tone just naturally change and organically shift with the style of the song, on top of it just being incredibly heavy. And then when Angus Young's first solo kicks in, the 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 timing of the riff changes. So it goes like, obviously we know the opening riff, but when Angus Young's first solo in it, um, first does his solo, the riff of Back in Black is shifted slightly, where it's like, dun, diddle-dun, 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 diddle-dun. And he, he's not doing the second chord that that is actually in the main riff. You can still hear that it's Back in Black, but it's shifted slightly to give more, more credence to Angus Young's solo. And I think that some of those little moments are so clever. So, so clever. And on top of that, again, Angus Young plays two solos in this that you could sing, you can hum along to. And yeah. there's, there's also that fucking superb fast riff two-thirds of the way through. Yeah, So, so good. And um, it's, it's, their, it's their brilliant, brilliant mix of being able to go from hard rock heavy metal to like blues and they're constantly swaying between the two, um, and it just works. 
Absolutely. Absolutely perfectly. Absolutely perfectly. Um, and it, Back in Black's the more iconic song. Yeah. But I think You, you Shook Me All Night Long is the definitely the better single. And it's it's the better pop hit. It really sort of propelled them upwards because I adore You Shook Me All Night Long. I adore it. Yeah. Um, the, I don't. I don't have. I don't have a more. I don't think there's a more enjoyable, satisfying, thirty seconds of rock music than the introductory riff. So you shut me on my long. The snare hit, and then the riff change. And I, I just adore it. And it also feels differently to every other ACDC song because the drum beat is different. It's like one yeah. of the only other drum beats that is uh, Phil um, Phil Rudd ever plays. That dunk. And it just it's just kinda offbeat and I just everything about it, the lyrics, the 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 chorus is just a magnificent, magnificent rocket. You know, you mentioned it and I'm just gonna piggyback off your point. Back in Black is probably the most universally known rock song ever. It's been yes. used for Call of Duty as a main as a main song for one of the Black Ops games. Obviously, Back in Black quite fitting. Um, mm-hmm. It's been used on sport promos, TV mm-hmm. adverts, films. Its legacy is just everlasting, timeless. And uh, and when you mention it, you shut me on not long. It's an interesting slant on that track because it's probably the most commercial sounding track on the album. Obviously. How could you possibly have an issue with it? It's fucking incredible. You know, a bit like on Highway to Hell's If You Want Blood, you can just like kind of, I can like, I, I think I mentioned when we spoke about Highway to Hell, could just kind of imagine, I can like picture right now, the dance floors of the 70s and 80s bars and clubs filling up when you shut me all night long comes on because it's just that amalgamation of pop masquerading as something else but done fucking amazingly and done to a point where your most ardent, I hate anything that's not rock fan would still be as in love with that song as the, I don't know, the, 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 uh, the Gloria Esther fan obsessive. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I absolutely, absolutely agreed. And this is, this, that's what I'm saying. Like at its best rock music encapsulates the heaviness of heavy metal and the, the gravitational pull to use your phrase, of pop music. And at, when they're married, uh, I think that that's the zenith of, of, great, of great music and great universal music, which is why um, if you look on those top 10 all-time sellers lists, it's half Michael Jackson and half Eagles and ACDC. Yeah. Uh, because the world loves great pop music and fucking great rock music. And, when, and if you can blend those two together, then that's the jackpot. That's the money maker. And and you shook you shook me all night long. Is a perfect example of a a song that if Abba wrote it would have been a massive hit. Yeah, it would, it would have just sounded like Abba. Um, sadly, and um, <laughs> I, I see ACDC just took that but added the ACDC slant to it because the the riff is just It's just perfect. And as well, this is all. These are all standard chords that ICDC do. There's no power chords here. This is not like Tony Iommi or like James Hetfield doing that two-fingered power chord and just spraying it up and, and so they can play really, really fast. These are guys playing like the same sort of chords that Noel Gallagher would play on Oasis songs, but through 
through the, the size and power of the ACDC amplifier and electronic guitar sort of sound, it's just so huge. And I think that's what gives them that, that pop texture as well, is that it's not simple power chords. It's not a metal sounding song. They've always had their foot in traditional blues and rock and roll as well. And they've always managed to, to share that, that parallel. And that's probably one of the reasons why they're so universally adored. I've never met a person who doesn't like ATDC. You might turn around to me and say, like, I, they're not for me. They're a bit boring. I've heard them a few more times. Like, you know, they're a bit old, whatever. Cool. Um, but they're just iconic, instant classics. And they, they should be the gateway to, to, to hard rock and heavy metal, really. Because that, that, that's what they are, really. In terms of style, if you start at ACDC and enjoy ACDC, it's not long before you get to like your Metallicas and things like that. And that's what this is. Like, if you're... Imagine that me and you, Chris, were born in, like, 1963 rather than 1993, right? So we're we're, we're 17 when Back in Black comes out, meaning that we're the same age that we are now in, like, 1990, right? Which would have been a glorious time to be alive. Um, We'd have been in our mid-20s in, like, 1986. You can see... Oh, me and you listen to Back in Black... Then two years later, me and you listen to Iron Maiden. Then yeah. two years later, me and you listen to Ride the Lightning. Yeah. And then like four years later, me and you were talking about Rust in Peace that Megadeth had just brought out and we're starting to get into Sepultura. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That's, the, that's literally the timeline of Mel. And it all, and it starts if you're like a, born in the early 60s. It starts with like Led Zeppelin in the 70s or ACDC in the late 70s and early 80s. And, and that's kicking you on. And it definitely had that impact on me. Um, speaking of pop culture, the, one of the reasons that I got into rock music and wanted to become a drummer was the moment where they played Back in Black on School of Rock when he selects his drummer. Oh, yeah. Um, and he's like on drums and Back in Black kicks in as he picks him. And I'm like, I'm like 11. I'm like, that's, that's the greatest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, it's cool as fuck, man. <laughs> so I, 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 that's the, I wanted to replicate that sort of moment, I guess. And... That, that that that's what School Rock 2003. So it's 23 years after Black in Black came out, and it's still influencing random people to get into rock music. And if that doesn't tell you about its reach into heavy metal and rock music as a culture, then there is there is no point even continuing this podcast because I, yeah. I don't know what more I could do. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like, yeah. they, they've done everything. Uh, absolutely wonderfully iconic band, and this is is why, like you said, like being used in adverts and Super Bowl commercials and and films and it's just been a steady presence in our lives for 40 years just to finish off from me uh, my favorite solo on the whole album comes on shake a leg um, oh great tune and you know angus and malcolm young are probably the greatest lead and rhythm section in, in rock aren't they um absolutely absolutely if you know they're in the conversation uh, the album's got what three or four of the most recognizable Lord Yudava rock songs that's ever been written. Um, I suppose you yeah. know it's the benchmark for classic rock, and I just you know you can't see a world where it gets topped, can you? And as I've mentioned before, the ACDC stamp of songwriting has lived in metal since their inception, and you know there's there's a conversation to be had there where who's the more influential? Black Sabbath or ACDC, you'd probably say Black Sabbath because of that record in 1970, but ACDC really aren't too far behind, which is interesting when you consider the fact that we don't consider ACDC a metal band now, we consider them hard rock. But I think that speaks to the genius of them and the absolute 
fucking genius of this record. What an incredible, incredible album. Completely agreed. And in ACDC's last live show um, with Axl Rose on vocals in 2016 in Philadelphia, they played five songs from Back in Black. Um, that's 36 years after its inception. Yeah. Uh, Back in Black, Shoot to Thrill, Hell's Bells, Giving the Dog a Bone. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And, and You Shook Me All Night Long. And, and if that doesn't indicate that it's not only lasted in, in our memories, but the band themselves are aware of the inherent pull and, and, and gravity of, of, the, of the songs that they put together and released, then, then like I said earlier, nothing else will. We're going to move on, Sam to a new record coming out this Friday that is Neck Deeps All Distortions Are Intentional out July 24th uh, on Hopeless Records I think there's a real fascinating dynamic between me and you because (laughs) some would call it fascinating (laughs) because I absolutely love pop punk you would watch it burn at the bottom of fucking Mordor um I absolutely adore extreme extreme metal. You you really you love it, but you don't love it. I, I think it's fair to say out of the two, extreme metal would be more my cup of tea than yours. Not to say that you don't yeah. like it. I just think that yeah, I understand I'd, that. So the, the two absolute extremes of alternative music, I, I absolutely love. Which some people find. I, I've we've got friends uh, that will go to uh, our local Michael Planet that I've spoken to about this before, and they've been like you love pop punk. What the fuck? I can't believe you look. And I'm like, yeah, it's amazing. I, you know, my easy listening, fucking, um, alternative music with a massive chorus, fucking inject it into me. I love it so much. And people are finding it such a, you know, I'm standing there with a lawn ashore long sleeve on <laughs> one of the most brutal, <laughs> one of the most brutal metal bands to fucking ever exist. And I'm standing there saying how much I love fucking state champs as well. You know, um, so there's a, there's an interesting dynamic between me and you and, you know, I think it's fair to say that in regards to in regards to pop punk, I mean, you're out after Blink One Eight Two self-titled album. You are, and that's you know, mate, that's fine because fucking that's a fucking incredible album. And if you're gonna love a pop punk band and only love one of them, then Blink One Eight Two between fucking Dude Ranch and that self-titled album is an absolutely unbelievable uh, band to choose. But I, I think that when we get to like neck deep some people underestimate the size of them some people don't realize how, how fucking huge they are their last album am I, am I some people chris no no I, i'm not because I, I don't know how much research you've done into neck deep prior to i i, I i'm gonna ask you this question right now sam and i, I know what the answer's gonna be have you ever listened to a neck deep album before before sam have you played me one before? <laughs> no, no. So, yeah, there it is. Um, so, I'm not sure how much research you would have done bef- before we get to this album. Um, Peace and the Panic, the last album, which I loved, um, was number four in the UK album chart, number two in the US Billboard. Wow. They're massive. They are yeah. un- unquestionably the biggest UK band to find success in America since Bring Me. And that is, there yeah. is no debate. They are fucking mm-hmm. huge in America. And they're, and they're really big in the UK. Um, for, for pop punk, Sam, you, you, you don't like the genre. So as we're getting to the point where obviously new Neck Deep album, 
when you're ready to press play here as someone who's not a massive fan of the genre but obviously we select the album because it's it's going to be a it's, it's a huge release that how could we not talk about what are you hoping for when you press play from a pop punk album <laughs> i was tempted to joke and say like a swift exit <laughs> but, um... realistically what are you hoping to hear because it's not going to be blink uh, one eight two because obviously travis isn't no you know, no 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 what a what I'm, what, I'm, what I'm hoping for is something that piques my interest uh, outside of not the blueprint of pop punk. So I, I, I know what I'm expecting, really, or at least I have a feeling for what I'm expecting. But um, I think it's also fair to say that at times over the last few years, despite my reservations, there have been a few pop punk songs that have, that have grabbed me. Um, like I've, I've liked a few Story So Far songs. Um, I've liked a couple of state champ songs at times, and 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 sometimes I could be I could be pulled back in. Um, what I'm looking for sometimes from Neck Deep or an album like this is, okay, I expect it to be a pop punk album, but I, I want I want something um, with a little depth too, and uh, I think that a great song with the pop punk elements would still win me over, and that's what I'm looking for. Is although I'm not expecting in the genre that pop punk isn't my favorite, but I'm hoping for a couple of great songs um, that, that win me over. And I like, I like the melody or I like the, the, the way that it's structured or there's something that differentiates this particular band from the elements of pop punk that I know I'm either expecting or have heard prior. So it's just something a little different. That's what I'm hoping for a different slant on things. In terms of critically from me and not commercially for Neck Deep, I think if there's been 10 great pop-punk albums in the last 10 years, two of them are Neck Deeps. Um, uh, Peace and the Panic and Life's Not Here to Get You, I think are fucking really great. And I really, really like those records. Life's Not Here to Get You is, is iconic for its genre. Oh, absolutely! Um, it's transcended to the point where I'm aware of it, like, and I'm and I and I actively go away from pop punk. So, like, if it, that's that's something that you know what I mean. That's when we talk about this has transcended the genre. This has brought in other fans and made them aware. And that's that's exactly what's happened here with Nicky. Pop punk has been going through an incredible law for a for a long for a long time now. I mean, I've just said in ten years there might have been about ten great pop punk albums which you know that's not really a compliment to the genre i think that there's you know there's been some really good albums but i think that absolutely the front runners have been the story so far for me personally at number one state champs and neck deep and then you go further down the list and like rome did a really good record with head down like Pacific, this and like you asked, that was wicked. Real friends, put yourself to, back together. Um, Nook, um, Knucklebooks, Copacetic was a was a really good album. I think I even showed you a, a song from that uh, album, and you yeah, really liked yeah, it. Um, Wait, Waste was red, green, or in between. Oh, I absolutely love that album. I can't believe they fucked it up so much when they did the album after that. I forgot. I think its name was Christ. It really wasn't very good. So you know, there's been it, it's been fucking thin on the ground for pop punk in the last in the last decade. Chris, do you think that because my 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 opinion of pop punk in the late two thousands and twenty tens and stuff is that it's very difficult to perfect it now because there's been a saturation of great pop punk throughout the nineties yeah. and two thousand twenty tens. Do you think it pop punk it 
we've almost heard so much great pop punk in its early inception that it's actually difficult to write a great pop punk record now because there's not there's not a lot not a place not a lot of places left to go. Does that make sense? That's where my my thought process is. You you, you know I, you can't write a progressive pop punk run record. You know you can't write a a pop punk record that goes away from its genre because then you're isolating your entire fan base. So it's it's very restrictive in, in, in the amount that you can do. Is that a fair statement? Mate, you're absolutely spot on. You are 100% correct. That is, you are bang on the money. But I think pop punk, obviously not musically, but shares a lot of similarities to thrash. In the 80s and 90s, yeah, there, were, there, were fucking, cool. there were 30 amazing thrash bands. And then in come 2020... <laughs> they wrote all the riffs we have yeah, the, left. <laughs> mate, that Havoc record that I, I liked, you were like, dude, this is the same thing we heard 25 years ago. What the fuck? And now I, yeah. I, like, I liked it for what it was, but that, that's the thing. Pop Punk shares a lot of similarities with Thrash. It, we, we, we've gone everywhere we can go with Pop Punk now. So all we've got left is bands that are just really good at replicating the formula, like State Champs. Now, the story so far, of all the bands, of all the Pop Punk bands, I think the story so far are the one are the one band that can take pop punk and stretch it. Um, their last one, the last record, Proper Dose, fucking brilliant, so good. Oh god, Parker Cannon is just the fucking best vocalist for this genre. Um, they're the one band that can stretch it. Everyone else is just replicating and trying to doing what Newfound Glory, early Simple Plan, early Blink One Eight Two did, early Fallout Boy. And, and just trying just trying to be quite good at it. That's where we are with pop punk now. So it, it's fucking incredibly difficult to be a breakthrough pop punk band now because it's been it's it's all been done. And like I say, we're talking ten years. There might have been ten great pop punk albums. That's not a good ratio. No, no, it's <laughs> That's not. not and good. It's it's the way I always try and convince my my old man to listen to new music by saying, "Oh, it sounds like this band that you love," and he's like, "Well, I've already got that band that I love. Why do I want to sound like this version of it?" Well, yeah, and that and and, and that's all. That's always that's always a difficult one to win, isn't it? Like like you've said, like if the best pop punk bands of the last decade are recapturing the formula of um, Blink One Eight Two, Green Day, uh, and, and and other great pop punk bands, then it's rightly so thinking, well, if they're just going to redo Basket Case, well, I'll just listen to Basket Case. Exactly. And it, it's, it's, it's hard, it's hard to do, it's hard to, to move the genre forward that way. And, 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 and you're right by pointing out that there's only been 10 pop punk, great pop punk albums the last decade in your view. If you compare that to metal, I mean, I could yeah, do 50 yeah. of the last decade. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. But without even, without really trying too hard. And, and that's, and, and that that shows that the, the the genre is just much more expansive, and you, you can do a bit more with it. So I agree that it's a it's a difficult world to be a good pop punk band as well. Difficult world. So with that said, I found it impressive that for me, Neck Deep have been a great pop punk band and absolutely one of the front runners. I've always loved Neck Deep. They've got this real exaggeration of uh, and this element of fun in the records that I don't think we've heard almost at all or if you're being generous not that much this side of take off your pants and jacket um and once we get to all distortions of intentional uh, set in a fictional city of a place called sonderland not to be confused yeah. with sonderland um tells a story of a guy called jet falling in love uh, with this girl called alice 
in a mm-hmm. place that Jet originally hates living in. Uh, Sam, is it fair for me to say that the concept of this album is the most interesting thing about it? Yeah, what the fuck is a pop punk concept album anyway? Well, like, this, I mean, is, this is yeah. this is this is but yeah, I I, I completely I completely agree. This is like um a Michael Sarah film that nobody watches. <laughs> so, so I wouldn't go. Uh, I don't think what you meant is to call this a concept album. I I wouldn't go as far to call it a concept album, but the concept behind the songs. It is quite an interesting nuance. So when you're reading about it and you're, follow, and you're following the lyrics, it, it is interesting how they're, how they're telling this tale of falling in love, falling apart, trying to piece yourself back together again in this place. Yeah. That you can't, in this like place a Hollyoaks episode you kind of pay attention to. <laughs> Fucking hell. Um, <laughs> so... And, with me saying that, anyone listening to me probably thinks, oh, fucking Christmas hate this. I don't, actually. I, I think this is in, in, within the confines of, of what Neck Deep do. I think this is an undeniably good, very strong album. But it hasn't got the consistency that Neck Deep have implemented in other areas, like on The Peace and the Panic and Last Night to Get You, to make it a great album for me. I think it would probably make sense if we let you drill it first and then me try and pick the pieces, put the piece back together. Although I've said that, I don't actually know. Sam, what are you thinking? I think this is a good pop punk album. Right. Um, I think that it's at, the, at its high points, which I think is the, I think the highlight for me as a listener. And again, not a pop punk fan. So I'll take what I take with a cataclysmic size of salt. Um, <laughs> uh, but my, my, my personal highlight is sick joke. The lead, one of the lead singles. I think that's the best song on the album. I think it's, and it's also the song that transcends the pop punk style in the way that there's a real great pop melody that sings through it. And they, they structure around that beautifully. I also really like I revolve around you. And I also, there are, there are moments here when they play um, with like a clean guitar and that's like, Oh, okay. We're not doing the, the Mark Hoppers distortion thing um, all the time. That's good. Um, and there are moments where it breaks away a little bit from, from pop punk and, and I really enjoy those. Um, but that being said, as, as, as not a pop punk fan, I think that, that, that should be my new name, um, is I'll go in here and hear all the blueprints of good pop punk music, even though I don't necessarily subscribe to them as a listener. So there are moments here where if I'm a pop punk fan, I'm, I'm, I'm really enjoying myself. There's some really big choruses. There's some really high tempo, up tempo stuff. The guitars sound great. This is beautifully mixed. Um, I'll never not, not say that about pop punk bands. Their mixing jobs, especially when they get big, are usually phenomenal. Yeah, and and that is no different here with Neck Deep. Um, and yeah, I think I think some of the highlights here: Sick Joke, I Revolve Around You, and Four. Although at times the 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 um the the main melody to Four feels a bit little bit repetitive for me personally, um, but. I think this is a very good pop punk album, but my only criticism is like with so many pop punk albums I've heard, it is just that. And I don't think that is enough anymore. Essentially. I think if you want to do more and want to break away and dominate your genre, you almost have to do more than the genre itself. Otherwise you're just contributing another album to sort of the, the ever growing plethora of albums within that genre. And no band ever goes beyond their genre by just writing great albums within that genre, like Slayer never transcended metal. They were just a great thrash band. And and that's what happened. You know what I mean? So I, I think that with Neck Deep here, 
I think it's a very good pop punk album. But at the same time, if they ever want to be really, 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 really change, uh, really change the nature of music and break out from being within their genre, they need to write more than just a really, really, really great pop punk album. Because I think that it being a very good pop punk album is both the best and worst thing about this album, if that makes any sense at all. It does. It does. In, in, in the sense that it, it will give them the fan credence and continue their success, but also it will never advance their success or change their fan base in the slightest. And I don't know about you, there's nothing in this that I hear that I think, all right, this is why Neck Deep are going to headline. Um, they could headline Slam Dunk. Yeah, Slam Dunk. Yeah. Uh, also, I was bl- I was blanking on the the festival over in America that they. Uh, they oh, Warped Tour. Oh, that, yeah, thank I you. mean, it doesn't run anymore, but uh, I can see what it, you mean. Using that as using that as an equivalent. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like that sort of thing. I, I can't see this being the album that takes them over the edge because I always feel that if I heard a pop punk album that was transcendent, it would be transcendent because people like me would enjoy it, and. I, I think I'm the definition of the, the gap. I'm the bridge that you are. I know it's, this actually, this, I don't, I don't mean this to sound arrogant, but I'm an example of the type of fan where I'm open-minded enough to listen to good pop punk, if it's good, but also closed-minded enough where you have to convince me to listen to it. And if you win me over, I'm, I'm an indication of the fact that this is transcending just its audience. Does that make sense? Yes, I'm the, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the sort of fan you have to get if you want to be bigger than what you are if you're a pop punk fan. Because I liked good pop punk. I like some stories so far. Um, I like copacetic. I, you know, I, I can, I can, I can enjoy various parts. I even like bits of you, me at six, although I'll deny it to the death if you ever bring it up to my face. But um, <laughs> you know, the songs that go beyond that really work for me. And I don't think this does enough for a fan like me. If you sat, if you were trying to convince someone that didn't like pop punk but liked rock music to like pop punk, I wouldn't play them this album. But at the same time, if I had a pop punk fan friend who liked pop punk but hadn't heard this album, they would I know that they would love this album. I would play them that. Because it's just contributed to the genre, but I don't think it goes much far beyond it. So in conclusion, and I'll leave the rest of you because obviously um this is one hundred percent your your wheelhouse in comparison to mine. I think this is a very good pop punk album, but that is all it is. That is all it is. And I think that is both a good thing for them and also a bad thing for them. In large parts, I agree with you, actually. Uh, and But in a bit further detail, I, I think if you gave this record to Trash Boat, and no, no offence to Trash Boat, this would be the album of their career, if you gave this to Trash Boat. Oh, but, yeah, 100%. The standards are higher for Neck Deep, aren't they? Yeah, this is just a good Neck Deep album. It would be most pop-punk bands' album of their career. But for Neck Deep, because of the quality in my opinion of last night to get you and the peace and the panic this is just really solid good uh, neck deep have always been really good at adding a great level of hook into like their album filler tracks like heavy lies and the grand illusion on the peace and the panic they've got this really like wicked chorus inflections that even though it's quite obvious that they're just fill out the album like most bands do there's still really something you can get from them. Lime Street and Rock Bottom as well from last night to get you do exactly the same thing. And, but I think a lot of that is missing here and that's what hurts this at times. Um, too often, the, the tracks are, that aren't meant to be the big hitters fall a bit flat. It's interesting that you said Fall was one of the songs that you enjoyed most. I actually think that one, two hit of Fall and Low Life, uh, I'm, the, the, I'm the least fan of them. And they're two of the singles. I'm just not a fan of the tempo. 
I think the tempo on the chorus of them bags is, is quite low and, and boring. Um, th- there are some interesting moments that do flock up throughout the record, though. Uh, you mentioned Sick Joe. Mate, there's a really good bridge on Sick Joke where Ben is like yeah. almost like Ben Barlow, the vocalist, almost like borderline rapping, which was like, which kind of interesting. There's also a lead guitar in it. Yeah. Like as, a, as, as the hook, the lead guitar is the hook. And I was like, this is where it's going beyond pop punk. Do more of this. <laughs> Please. And then it, and it sort of goes back to everything else. So I was like, ah, because Sick Joke's great. That's it. Honestly, that is, that is a song that I, I like. Like, I would that I would put that on a five star place. Really enjoyed that song, but there's it just doesn't get for me as a listener. It doesn't get near that really elsewhere. You mentioned something really interesting there about the passage of lead guitar. Most pop punk bands, and in fact, I think I'd say almost every pop punk band going today, the weight is entirely on the vocalist's shoulders to really deliver the song, especially in the chorus. Because pop punk, as we've mentioned, you know, you're not going to find really progressive, thought-provoking lead and rhythm guitar passages in, in pop punk. You know, in, in pop punk, there's no other drummer like Travis Barker. And, you know, to call Blink right to a pop punk band in 2020 is probably a bit of a stretch. But you go back to the early 2000s, no one can do what he does. Um, for pop punk, so the the weight is so unbelievably lamped onto the vocalist's shoulders. So, in the elements of all this, all distortions are intentional. Where it doesn't hit, the choruses aren't massive. It makes it really, really stand out. So, when it gets to the tracks, where it gets to like for me, low life and fall. Because the choruses don't sound great, it kind of affects the whole song. There's no like yeah. verse, pa- there's yeah. no ver- there's no great solo or great drum fill or verse passage that can chuck back in to bring me back. Because I'm not massive on the chorus, I kind of fall out of the song. And uh, no, yeah, no, pop, into- pop punk revolves around that melody as well. Absolutely, you know what I mean, it has to have has to have a great chorus. Absolutely, has to have. And I agree with you. And it, it and that's why me and you like. That's why I get excited when I hear like a riff in like a song that I didn't expect there to be a riff in. Or like I hear like a bit of a clean guitar with like an open sort of chord sound, like what Def Havana used to do. And I'm like, oh, this is this is good. I'm into this because it's like you're so used to hearing the six out of ten chorus with the three yeah. chords all the time. And eight songs of that is is too much, man. There's loads on this album that's really good. Um, what Took You So Long has got a beautiful chorus, um, really great little nuances from Ben Barlow. Um, for, my, in, for me, the best songs on the album are Sonderland, the opener, uh, When You Know, um, the chorus on When You Know is so fucking, so brilliant. Uh, and I Revolve Around You as well. Uh, you mentioned that one. When, when Neck Deep hit those high passages, it's, it's fucking great, this album. But it's just... It, for me, it doesn't do it consistently enough. And there, it's filler tracks do drop somewhat below the bar. Um, and I think it's worth mentioning, actually, that I think this is the least fun Neck Deep album to listen to. And it's and that is, they purposefully have written this album to be a bit more, of a, a bit more grounded. And that's, it's not necessarily a criticism, but I'm not sure whether this, more grounded re- realism of songwriting 
has worked for them because Peace and the Panic addresses a lot of serious subject matter like death, etc. But that album is still really, really fun and really easy listening. Whereas I find with all distortions are intentional, it takes a bit more effort. And because of it's, it's like a much more seriously palleted album. For me, it doesn't work as well as what Neck Deep have done previously. I really like this album. It's a very good pop punk album. And like I said, this would be most pop-punk band's album of their career, but put it in the hands of Neck Deep after the last two records, and I think it's the third best thing they've ever done. Um, it's a, As we've mentioned, the bar for Neck Deep is substantially higher than most pop-punk bands, and it, that bar might not be very high for you because you're not a massive pop-punk band, but for me, I, I had really, really high expectations going into this, and I'm not disappointed because it's a, it's a very good, solid album. But neck deep at the moment, are sitting right on the precipice of exploding worldwide. And I'm not sure whether this album will do it for I mean, obviously, they've already hit number two on the US billboard, so you're probably thinking, how much more can that explode? I mean, like, in the UK, being arena band, they're, they're sitting right on the precipice of that. They're, I believe they're playing Alexandra Palace. Uh, they absolutely could headline slam dunk. So they're sitting right on the right on the edge of, of that of that big explosion. I'm not sure whether this album will do it for them. I wouldn't be as bold as to say yes or no, to be honest, because it's left me teetering on the edge. I'm not 100% certain. But regardless, I think it's a good album. It would be a great album for most bands, but it's just a good one for Neck Day. Okay, that's fair. I would agree. Almost an hour and a half, Sam, and we only spoke about two albums. Can you believe that? <laughs> Fuck me. Um, uh, for, for, a podcast, uh, for a podcast, I can. For, for, for normal life, me and you, that's a slow week, I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, we are going to be back in a week's time with our normal podcast, which means news is going to be back. We've also got a new segment premiering called Breaking Bands, which is going to replace our greatest metal album of all time list on the normal episode. So it won't be... Uh, 30, 40 minute chats about an album, but it will be me selecting an, a band that me and Sam have never heard of and we're going to listen to their record. And I believe the first one that we're going to do is by a band called Orbit Culture. So we've got their record as well as some other big hitters that I'm going to pick out for the next episode. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed me and Sam uh, ranting about the greatness of ACDC and uh, Sam wanting to murder me slowly for making him listen to a pop punk <laughs> album. Uh, we're going to be back in a week's time. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, check out Stereo Brain Records. Give us a like, subscription, and tell a friend about us. We love you very much. We'll see you next week. Bye. <laughs>